0: So tonight I'm going to be talking about the third of the five hindrances, um, which is described as sloth and torpor. I'm wondering how many of you have been to the previous two talks here. So, uh, a number of you. I thought since this is the halfway through the series, I would um, review the five hindrances so that you're all kind of up to speed on that. The five hindrances, um, the first one is sensual desire. And that's the, the um, striving after certain sense experience, typically pleasant sense experience. And there's nothing wrong with having pleasant sense experience. It's just, um, when one gets caught in trying to hold on to or pursue a sense experience, it can get in the way of being with the moment-to-moment experience of your life. The, the Buddha had two sets of similes to, the, to, to um, explain what these hindrances are like. Uh, in one of the sets of similes, sensual desire is described as like being in debt. So there's some um, a connection that one uh, has a hard time um, getting free of. I guess in our culture, being in debt is so common that that probably doesn't seem like much of a hindrance, but uh, I think perhaps in, in India in the Buddha's day, being in debt was something that um, you may never get out of. The other set of similes, sensual desire, is described as looking at yourself in a pool of water that has um, a very bright dye or paint in it. So what you see reflected back isn't really a true representation of of yourself, that, that it's colored with this dye. The second hindrance it's called ill will or aversion. And that's sort of the complement to sensual desire. That's the pushing away of experience, the the not wanting uh an experience that's arising to be there. So it could vary anywhere from kind of mild irritation to um, strong hatred. And ill will the, the presence of ill will is is was described by the Buddha is likening onto having a disease, so that's an experience again all of us have had um, that it's unpleasant and um, there's usually nothing that can be done immediately to to relieve it. In the water similes, the presence of ill will is like looking into a pool of uh, boiling or bubbling water, so. Again, you you don't see clearly what's what's there. The third hindrance is actually split into two. It's called sloth and torpor. And I looked both of those words up and it was a little bit confusing. But as I understand it, one of them refers to sort of a mental dullness or laziness sometimes um, said. And torpor is more of a, a physical dullness or um, drowsiness. And being caught by sloth and torpor is described as like being in prison. So that is an experience I've had, although I was in graduate school, Mm -hmm. so it felt like doing seven years to life. Um, But again, there's kind of restriction on uh, where you can go and, and what you can see and in the, uh, the pond metaphors, sloth and torpor is described as like a, a weedy mossy pond. So things growing in it uh, on the surface so that you can't really get a, a clear, um, accurate representation of, of reality. The fourth hindrance again is also split into two. It's called uh, restlessness and remorse or restlessness and worry. Um, restlessness referring to kind of an agitation of the body or the mind, and remorse or worry um, coming from some kind of um, guilt about what may have happened in the past. And in the presence of restlessness and remorse is described as being like a slave so that you don't have a free will as to your action. And in the water metaphor, Um, Restless and remorse are described as being a pond that has wind blowing over it, so it's covered with ripples. And the fifth hindrance is skeptical doubt. And that has to do with doubt about the practice, doubt about uh, the, the Buddha's prescription for becoming liberated from suffering And that's described as like being lost on a desert road. Um, I've never been in a desert in India, but I know in the Mojave Desert you can be out and there's nothing to really orient yourself, that it's just all flat and and you don't know where your source of water and food is going to be. And in the water similes, Skeptical doubt, the presence of skeptical doubt is likened onto looking to a, a muddy pond, one that has been stirred up so the, the mud obscures the, the seeing. So the, you might ask, what do the hindrances refer to? and and why should you be concerned about them? Well, the hindrances, what they hinder is the development of concentration and the development of insight. So it's very important in this practice that over time, the development of concentration allows the, 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 the deep insights into the nature of your experience Um, and the hindrances get in the way of developing that concentrated mind. So the concentrated mind is also important in uh, developing um, rapture, deep energy, uh, joy, and equanimity, which are all factors on the way to enlightenment. So before coming to practice I don't think I was even aware that there were hindrances and you know, I thought that's just the way my mind operated. And as I as I heard about this list um, it at first was kind of overwhelming. I mean how how are you going how are you going to be able to overcome all of these these um these experiences. And the best way to start is by just, rather than um, developing an aversive relationship to them, uh, aversion to the hindrances is just another hindrance. So the best thing is to bring, to be able to bring mindfulness to them. And bringing mindfulness to sloth and torpor, I find particularly difficult. Um, I chose to talk about this subject not because I'm an expert in it at all, but because it's uh, probably one of my most challenging areas of practice. Um, sloth and torpor really work directly against mindfulness That that when things arise, when when, uh, sloth and torpor are present, they tend to dull the mind. And so you don't always pay attention to what's going on. Let's see. So I found that the developing mindfulness of, of, the, of this hindrance um, started by seeing, at first, the most exaggerated forms of it, and that was in meditation when I would close my eyes and start falling asleep. I mean, that was, it was, was kind of hard to miss when you're about to slump over that something is going on. And also I, I would, could notice when the hindrance wasn't present. Noticing when I felt like my mind was really sharp and clear, and there was a lot of energy and it was fairly easy to get concentrated that, that this hindrance wasn't present. And then from there, it, I'd work towards seeing the more subtle manifestations of it in meditation. Um, for example, when, when my mind would start getting um, dull or my energy would start getting low, I'd notice that, that I wasn't paying attention to my breath. I mean, I wasn't noting what was going on, Um, and I couldn't remember what the last note was that I made. Let's see. So So it's important to start by just being mindful of this, of this hindrance. And from there you can learn to um, find what, what tools or what techniques are useful in, in working with it. For me, it took a while to develop a, fam- a familiarity with not only this hindrance, but all of the hindrances. In particular, I would find that that sloth and torpor often arose right after one of the more unpleasant hindrances arose. So for me, uh, restlessness and worry are extremely unpleasant. I, I mean, I can't miss those when they arise. It's it's very it's a very strong bodily sensation. Quite often, um, uh, very. Um, agitating for the mind. It's hard to stay, to find or stay connected with that quiet place where wise action comes from. So I would know that something needed to be done, but I had no idea of what it was. And the mental dullness, the sloth and torpor, would often then arise after that and kind of dull out the sharp edges of restlessness. And it doesn't really solve anything. I mean, it's sort of a temporary effect. Um, And sometimes I would then be able to kind of regroup and start looking more carefully at the restlessness directly. And sometimes, the sloth and torpor would just kind of cover over the restlessness kind of like a blanket, and over time, the energy of the restlessness would build and then break through, and it would be even more even more suffering um, so i've I've learned over time to. To recognize when when that when that's happening. Uh, for me, particularly, restlessness starts to arise at about three or four in the morning when I'm in bed. And if I catch it, if I realize restlessness is going on, and I pay attention to that directly, then I can. I can work with the restlessness and the the sloth and the torpor and the the dullness doesn't arise. Um, And when I don't recognize it or when I decide that I'm not gonna pay attention to it, then the dullness will set in and I'll I'll, um, sleep for another fitful three or four hours and not feel very rested. Something similar happens also for me with aversion and sloth and torpor. That when um, aversion arises, I also find that um, a strong, unpleasant experience. <coughs> and again, if I don't catch it, if I don't pay attention to the to the aversion, then the the sloth and torpor will will arise and kind of dull it out. Um, Until it gets even stronger, and it reaches a point where I I can no longer ignore it. Um, I think each person is probably made up somewhat differently, so you know your strongest your strongest hindrance may be different. But sloth and torpor is probably one of the most persistent of the hindrances in the path to enlightenment. Skeptical doubt goes after the first step. There's four levels to to the attaining of total enlightenment. But sloth and torpor doesn't go until the very last step. So you're gonna be working with that one for a while. Um, So after becoming familiar with this hindrance, then it's important to start developing techniques to work with the hindrances. For this one, it's it's characterized by a lack of energy, uh, often a lack of interest in what's going on in your your experience. Um, And so, to turn that around requires then bringing some invest, a deeper investigation to what's going on. So strengthening investigation, uh, strengthening your exertion, and uh, bringing up more energy. In the suttas, the Buddha talked about um, six different ways for working with this hindrance. And the first one that was uh, listed was uh, seeing overeating as one of the causes of it. Uh, Last fall, I did a six-week retreat at IMS in Berry, Massachusetts. And in that retreat, I decided to Follow a program that was suggested of not eating any meal after the noonday, not eating any solid food after the noonday meal. And at first, I thought that that was going to be quite a struggle, right? A real difficult thing to to not eat from, say, one in the afternoon until six thirty in the next morning. But what I found was that in that whole six weeks, I probably only had one or two sleepy sits, which is fairly unusual. Usually I have one or two a day. Um, But by really eating slowly and mindfully and noticing when the body had enough food, I I found that I didn't miss the, the last meal at all. And I had a lot more... Um, physical energy. I never felt like I was going to fall and I rarely felt like I was going to fall asleep. Um, I did have times when there was sort of a, a, a mental laziness, but that didn't seem related to the eating. So that was one of the areas where I felt like I was able to bring some wisdom to eating. Now, in day-to-day life, it's not always like that for me. I find that uh, particularly, when I'm feeling stressed, um, eating is often a way to kind of dull the the pain or the the, the unpleasantness of the the uh, uncertainty and the the chaos of my day-to-day life. You know, of that just not knowing exactly what to do. Um, you know, e the the major and minor conflicts that arise, both between myself and others, and just within my own mind about what to do. And so, there's a strong habit for me of going to eating as a way to dull that that the pain of the conflict and the chaos. But that doesn't really solve anything. It just it just dulls out. It doesn't doesn't really um, work through that suffering. So that's one area to really pay attention to, to to investigate. Another technique for working with um, sloth and torpor is changing bodily posture. On meditation, if you find yourself succumbing to drowsiness or um, indolence or boredom, then it can be helpful if you you take a a somewhat more upright posture. And for kind of mild drowsiness, that can often be quite effective. And that isn't just sitting on a, a cushion either. It's also sitting in a chair, um, I've noticed over the years that how I sit in a chair at work really affects the kind of energy I have and, and how, I, how I pay attention in meetings and things like that. So how you sit and how you stand can often have a, a fairly significant effect on the, your alertness, both in meditation and in life. Also, in meditation, if one gets um, quite drowsy, like you think you're going to, you know, like fall over, or just you know, there's absolutely no way that you can stay awake. Um, standing up can bring a lot of energy to the body. And in long retreats, it's it's pretty common at the end of a sitting, when the bell rings and you open your eyes to see one or more. Um, people standing and that's a perfectly acceptable way to to work with this drowsiness. Um, I've even taken to that sometimes in science meetings. I work as a scientist and after a couple of hours of of, uh, listening to presentations sometimes and I don't drink coffee because of blood pressure so um the best way to um avoid the embarrassment of falling out of my chair is to stand up and but stand in the back of the room not not at the front of the room. so changing bodily postures is another way to work with this um, with this hindrance. A third one that that the Buddha talked about was thinking of the perception of light well that's I'm not sure I've ever been successfully been able to sit with my eyes closed and think about light uh, in, in a way that was strong enough to, to arouse energy. But certainly, uh, kind of in between just sitting more upright and standing up during um, retreats is opening your eyes and letting in some light. And the trick there is to um, keep your your um gaze at maybe a 45 degree angle so that you're not, you know, kind of like looking all over the room and kind of getting interested in the outside world, but just looking at something that's fairly neutral like the floor, but letting the light in so that it'll arouse energy in your body. Um, The Buddha also suggested um, staying in the open air and Depending on where you're sitting, you say if you're sitting at home, you could open a window or um, say if you're here, you might go outside and uh, sit in the fresh air. Let's see. The fifth technique that the Buddha taught was noble friendship. And I'm not sure that that's so applicable to meditation, but I think in, in day-to-day life, it can be extremely effective. If you pay attention to what's your energy like when you're around different people. Um, I find that when I'm with people that I know from the meditation center in particular, and other groups that, that practice forms of, of mindfulness and um, consideration, that it helps cultivate um, an energy and an aliveness and an interest in my experience. Whereas if I'm with people that are more cynical or somewhat um, I think coarse in their sensitivity to, to others, that, that over time, unless I'm really paying attention, there's some... Um, There's some dullness that sets in. So that's that I think is is um, an interesting area to work. I don't think that that means that you need to be only with a small group of people from your um, spiritual community to the exclusion of the rest of the world. It's important to stay connected to the. to to the world. Um, But it's also important to pay attention to what effect does being around other people have on you? And related to that is the sixth one which is um, having suitable conversation. I think that the remedy for all all five of these hindrances. That some of the first, the first ones are different, but noble friends and suitable conversation, is considered um, antidotes for all five. When I was thinking about that, this last one, suitable conversation, in relationship to sloth and torpor, I realized that. Probably my strongest mentor in this area is a friend of mine that I've known since kindergarten who's not a Buddhist, he's not a meditator, but he's someone who has always had an amazing level of interest and investigation into the world and into his experience. Now, most of it has been more in the area of of the physical world, like cars and machines and things like that, as opposed to the psychological. But I realized that, that his joy in investigating life has rubbed off on me and has affected me over the 47 years that we've been friends. So... I think this is that's the suitable conversation. Really, again, is something that you can pay attention to in day to day life. Of what is what does the conversation feel like? What's the energetic quality of it? Um, Does it feel like it's um, strengthening your awareness, your mindfulness? Or is it is it um, bringing some dullness or drowsiness or um, disconnection? See the the Buddha. There were there were also a number of other um, lists that he had for things to do. To work with sloth and torpor, um, one has to do with the recollection of death—that life is uncertain, but death is certain. So we don't we don't have we don't know how much time we have for doing the practice. So now is the best time to be cultivating mindfulness. Um, Also, the development of sympathetic joy. Um, One of the kind of easiest ways for me to get in touch with sympathetic joy, which is joy, delight in the joy of others, is when I bring to mind my nephews and niece who are kind of between three and eight years old. And although they're not always joyous, they often just... Um, have a happiness that seems to come almost out of nowhere, and when I can connect with that joy that that they um, demonstrate, then that that brings a a sympathetic joy for me that that raises both my physical energy and my mental net energy. And then finally, there were the five—a list of five dangers, things that to to think about, which to motivate yourself to really practice now. One of them is considering that that as you get older, it's going to be harder and. There, a time may come when you can no longer practice. you know, Physically or mentally, you will not have the capability. So now is the time. Um, there's a good chance that in the future, you'll become sick, ill, maybe very acutely ill, and it'll be hard to practice. It'll hard to develop mindfulness and concentration. So now is the time practice. Right now I suspect all of us have had a meal in the last day, but in the near or far future we may be faced with hunger and hunger will make it harder to practice. So now is the time to practice. Um, Right now, our society is fairly peaceful and crime-free, relatively. But that could change. There could be great chaos and uncertainty. And that would get in the way of practicing. So while we have this social harmony, now is the time to practice. And finally now we have a harmonious community of meditators people to support so they can support each other in practice and in following the path of the dharma that may not always be so that may change that may make it harder to practice harder or impossible to practice so now is the time And then finally, I wanted to end with a um, reading from a book by Aya Kema, who's a, a German uh, nun called uh, Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. Aya Kema was a very um, fierce and strong-willed um, practitioner who inspired um one of my teachers, to go into um, teaching. So I, I never got a chance to um, practice with her, but I feel like I've had some connection through my teacher, Lee. She says, Meditation has to fascinate one. Then there is no reason for the mind not to be alert. At the beginning of the practice, meditation is not delightful at all. It seems bothersome. It seems to be difficult. It has the ingredients of suffering. But when the mind has an understanding about what one is doing, namely watching each moment as it arises, it becomes fascinating to get to know one's own mind. What could be more fascinating Talking to other people or just reading a book is only knowing about others. But if one watches one's own mind states, arising and passing, arising and passing, that is the most fascinating thing one can do and the most profitable. So, I hope that you can take that encouragement to um, continue to practice and continue to to work through the dullness and drowsiness of the third hindrance. So are there any questions or comments or uh, rebuttals? Things you'd like to to say about this this hindrance, or any of the other hindrances that. Um... Yeah, there's um, one of the the practices that's taught in on retreats is developing guarding the sense doors. So knowing that those, you know, that the news is out there and things are out there. So being aware that they're there, but being mindful not 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 to let them in unknowingly.
1: You know, because I always thought that once I'm sleepy, along about you know 11 or midnight or something, that it was over, you know, and I might as well go to bed. And it's just so many times that you get a second wind, you know, if you can go, through, if you can work through it, or that it turns out to be just, just kind of that actually I was awake, but I was afraid of the whole night with no mm-hmm. activity, you know, mm-hmm. or just yes. a sort of fear of there's nothing between now and breakfast. What am I gonna do? Just sit <laughs> for eight hours, you know, and it just. That fear kind of turned into sloth. So it's just, just pointing out that there's so many different. Um, you know, you can just be dead sleepy, and then all of a sudden, wide awake. You know, it's just an energy thing that comes and goes. And or then there's just being really sleepy. And there's just so many different things that disguise that appear in the same way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I've had reports from many friends of how they you can pick up a book, and it becomes so interesting that they'll just read throughout the entire night. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. This sort of with what Chris says is that I found that I've been sitting daily for about 10 months and I find I have to be careful how late I meditate because I have too much energy and then I can slip around the clock because I, I won't go to sleep. Mm. And it, it's very easy for that to happen because I'll be too energized. And then I'll sort of invite Torpor to come along, <laughs> it's mm. like at the point where something aversive will happen and there'll be this impulse to collapse into it, I'll sort of dive into the collapse just because I don't know what to do, <laughs> and it's like, oh no, it's 2.30, <laughs> you know, and it's like, aren't I supposed to be asleep? <laughs> So I haven't learned how to cope with that, and and using the torpor, which comes in reaction for me to something else, I don't think that that's a very skillful thing. It's convenient, Mm -hmm. because I like to sleep.
0: Well, um,
1: what do you think, Chris? Well, I think aversion, (laughs) I mean, typically, because you're wanting to to get rid of it, so in the sense that you can't really, um, typically it would be aversion, I think. I mean, you could have any of these reactions to it, you know, it sort of depends on how your mind works, If if you're... it could make you really restless, for example, because you don't recognize that you have the pain. You know, and you're trying to kind of skip around and pay attention to anything else or to put you to sleep. You know, but, but if you're really aware that you're having pain and what you're feeling is thoughts that you're having pain. It's probably a But it doesn't have to be. You can have the pain and not have the aversion to it. But if you're unable to be mindful of the pain and you keep getting lost in thoughts about it,
0: Yeah, that's what I would do. Yes.
1: Focus on the, if only there was this positive thing happening instead, and something, like something to focus on. Mm-hmm. You know, if only it weren't this. It feels a like good way to stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are ways to fix it, you know, or something like that if only I Yes.
0: Well, that's an interesting area. I feel like I've been exploring that myself. Um, One of the ways, well, one of the antidotes for sloth and torpor is investigation. Mm -hmm. So there's a a practice known as reflection practice where you might go for a, a long walk and after maybe half an hour, when your, your body is... Um, you're kind of in an even rhythm. Um, asking questions like, what is your deepest intention? What is it that's most important to you? What do you wish for? And, and in asking that question, just just allow the question to come out and you don't have to have, you don't have to get an answer. It's The description of this practice is, is somewhat like taking a pebble and dropping it into a pond. So posing the question is like dropping the pebble and then you can just watch the waves. So doing that kind of practice, asking that, that question of what your deepest intention is and then paying attention, what, you know, what goes on, what, what emotions come up, what thoughts come up, um, physical sensation, and just trust to, to let whatever unfolds unfold. And you might find that, that just bringing that kind of investigation to, to what really motivates you, not what you think ought to motivate you, but what really more deeply motivates you may um, lift the dullness. Well, if we don't have any more questions, how about if we sit for about another five minutes? So thank you all for your attention and thank you for your practice.